Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, as always. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Are you changing it up? You're like Will Sloan. Matthew Kumar says that on every episode of <laughs> Loose Cannons, and and I liked it, so I thought I'd nick it from him. <laughs> All right. So one day we're just gonna have Matthew Kumar replace you. And <laughs> no one will know the difference, I guess, if you're just gonna absorb all of his tricks and beloved catchphrases, exactly. like as always. <laughs> so this week we watched three movies. We shook it up, gave ourselves some extra homework. I have to warn you that I didn't watch the third movie. Really? But I watched two. I've seen the third movie before, so I'm gonna let you do the heavy lifting on that. And I I apologize. I know that you, our audience, deserve better from us, and maybe. <laughs> we should start a Patreon campaign <laughs> so that we can ensure better. So they will pay us for us to do better better than we're doing right now? Yeah. Oh. So what were the, the three movies? We watched Barbara Loden's Wanda. I've seen it. We watched Charles Naughton's Night of the Hunter. I saw it five years ago. <laughs> and we also watched... Leonard Castle's The Honeymoon Killers, yes. which I which I just saw this morning. Had you seen it before? Like 10 years ago. Let's talk about The Honeymoon Killers first. Well, let's say why we're doing this episode. Normally, here at the Important Cinema Club, we like to talk about auteurs. Uh, you know, your... Pauline Kael. Your Pauline Kael's, your, 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 Kales, your, your Radley, your Madley Metzger's, uh, the, the titans of world cinema. But every once in a while, there's a filmmaker who, you know, just gets her done, to quote my favorite comedian, Larry the Cable Guy, on their first try. <laughs> they they make one movie, it's great, and then they're never heard from again. And we'd like to examine what those movies are and why we never, well, not why we never heard, because we can't. We, we can't, can't answer, answer that, that. question. Um, so Leonard Castle's Honeymoon Killers, it has a real history behind it, because it's the movie that Martin Scorsese was supposed to be his first um, commercial picture after, um, is that, who's, who's that, that knocking? knocking on my door? Yeah. And it's also the movie that Francois Truffaut once called his favorite American film. And Leonard Castle is not really a filmmaker. And the way that he kind of came to the project is interesting, which is his roommate was a producer. A producer on Firing Line with William F. Buckley, of all things. <laughs> and he decided, I want to make... A movie that will give me money. So let's pick serial killers. And they based it on the Lonely Hearts killers. And Leonard Castle was his roommate, who at that time was known as a as a composer of operas. So yeah, the producer, Warren Stiebel, was living with uh, Leonard Castle, and they were both researching the Lonely Hearts killer together. And Warren Stiebel thought, oh, well, it'd be a lot easier if you just wrote the script, and then we could save some money. So he wrote the script, and then, as you said, they got Martin Scorsese to direct it. Who supposedly just went really slow, and that was the big problem. He shot a few scenes, I don't know the exact number of days, but eventually he he got fired, because he was just going too slow. And the screenwriter just took on the directing duties. So the movie stars uh, Latin lover Tony Lobianco, who you film fans will know from Larry Cohen's God Told Me To. Uh, he plays, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a slickster, kind of a cool dude who connects with a sad, lonely, overweight nurse played by Shirley Stoller, who later went on to become a regular on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did read about that. So they have an, uh, a male correspondence and then they finally meet up, decide to run off together. But there's a catch. Um, the catch is that he's still going to go see the women that he's been wooing to steal their money. And eventually that leads to murder. And having never seen this film before... I was a little 
little bit surprised at how long it took to lead to murder. Did you like the movie? I did like the movie. And I can totally see why this is one of Francois Truffaut's favorite films, because it's almost shot like he would make a movie. It, it, fe- it feels, it looks like a Truffaut movie, sort of like the 400 Blows or something in that almost verite's grainy black and white style. But there's something about it, it, it really feels like an American movie. When Francois Tr- Truffaut says it's his favorite American movie, I think American is key. And a lot of people have also compared it to kind of John Watersy. You know, the stars are not people that you would usually expect to be headlining a picture like this. That's right. Like, um, Shirley Stoller is maybe, I don't know, five foot three, 200 pounds or something like that. And normally, if it was a regular Hollywood movie and they got an overweight woman to star in it, there would be kind of a cuteness to her, I think. But Shirley Stoller has a real kind of like hard look to her face. She, As you said, she looks kind of like a John Waters character like divine or something i mean that in the nicest way possible (laughs) and you can understand that when the film was originally released they tried to market it as an exploitation picture and had no luck when it came to that because it doesn't really seem to be interested in the exploitative elements that much well on the criterion dvd there's an interview with leonard castle where he talks about this movie came out shortly after bonnie and clyde and two years after Bonnie and Clyde, in fact, in 1969, and he was very appalled by Bonnie and Clyde. He thought it was kind of romanticizing or glamorizing the characters, and he wanted a tough, brutal movie with ugly characters doing ugly things, but empathetic towards them. Yeah, I was going to say, do you feel any kind of empathy for these characters? Because it feels like the filmmakers definitely do. Oh, for sure. I mean, well, in the early scenes with Shirley Stoller, when she signs up for that Lonely Heart service... You do get a sense of, I mean, you get a, a real potent sense of her loneliness. And there's something about the the hardness of her face that I think conveys a lot of emotion, you know? And they portray her. I don't right know from, how to articulate that. Right from the first scene as a nurse. And is there anything more associative with someone that's like in charge and has no humor than someone playing a nurse? It's like somebody who is in charge and has no humor, but you could tell that there's like, she's in charge and has no humor because there's a lot of vulnerability there that she's covering up. And like that she's, she's trying to express in whichever way she can. And like, she, she's not, she's basically uh, given up hope on love and she's been maybe hurt by rejection too many times, so she's not even going to let it penetrate her surface until she does decide to finally let it penetrate her surface. And then she's not going to let it go. Exactly. (laughs) But the movie is really good. I don't think there's any kind of, you know, quantifying thing we have to put, like, well, it was his first film, there was a lot of problems, but... Which brings the question of, like, why do you think he never made another movie? Well, I'm interested in the authorship of this film. I mean, I, it was it was put forth by Warren Stiebel. It was kind of his brainchild. Leonard Castle wrote it, directed it, but he took over directing from first Martin Scorsese and then another guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a sense that he kind of directed it as a last resort. But at the same time, when you see him interviewed, it's clear that he had a a vision for this film. Yeah, it was his baby. He wasn't just like the hack that they brought on to finish it as quickly as possible. And the movie has a lot of character. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful looking movie in its ugly, grainy way. Uh, it has a lot of beautiful images in it that are clearly his. Well, the director talks about that the film, he has to put it all on the shoulders of his cinematographer, Oliver Wood, which I, if I'm not mistaken, this was his first film. And what's interesting about Oliver Wood is that he went on to an insane career. He went on to do the cinematography of stuff like Scooby-Doo, Monsters Unleashed. Great movie. Or Sister Act 2. But at the same time, he also... Excuse did... me, that's Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. <laughs> but he also did stuff like The Bourne Supremacy. And he became friends with Adam McKay, I guess, because he did Tal- 
Talagata Knights, uh, the other guys, Anchorman 2. He, he was even the cinematographer on the new Jack Reacher film and the Ben-Hur remake, mm. directed by everyone's favorite director who made Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Oh, yeah, we should do an episode on him. <laughs> anyway, so there were clearly a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this movie. Uh, even though I think it's fair to attribute the authorship to Leonard Castle. The movie wasn't all that successful when it came out because originally it was sold to Cinerama Releasing Corporation, which did exploitation movies mostly. They did Walking Tall with Joe Don Baker. Great movie. And they wanted to re-edit it so that they put the, the worst murder in the middle of the film, kind of the most harrowing murder sequence at the beginning, mm-hmm. which he rightly thought through the whole balance of, well, because it has to build up off. to that, right? Exactly. I think the first murder takes place 70 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. That if you went in not knowing that The first murder, violent murder. The first violent murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a death by pills that takes place a little bit earlier. Which is probably the most unintentionally funny scene in the movie. Well, the person that dies sticks her tongue out like... <laughs> and also, the camera lingers on her face and you can see her tongue move. <laughs> maybe she's not really dead. Oh, maybe. She's going to come back in the final reel and be like... Pew, pew, pew. So the movie didn't get, it got kind of a sporadic release, and over the years, a cult following has developed around it. In his interview on the Criterion disc, Leonard Castle talks about how he was given the option to direct a lot of other movies like The Honeymoon Killers, but he kept pushing for his own more personal projects. I think he said that he has like seven scripts that were on the back burner, and sadly Leonard Castle passed away a few years ago, so those will definitely not come to fruition under his direction. But also, if he were alive, they probably still would not, because (laughs) it it took 35 years, and he still still hadn't made them. But I think that this is an example of a director that it probably wasn't his main calling mm-hmm. because he did become a teacher and he taught classical music and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And as a composer, it, that's probably what his main interest was. So since he wasn't really all that passionate about being a director, he probably only wanted to direct, to direct if it was something that he liked. So somebody like Martin Scorsese, after he after he got fired from The Honeymoon Killers, he went and directed an exploitation movie for Roger Corman, Boxcar yeah. Bertha. Because he just needed to make movies. And Boxcar Bertha... Uh, uh, a mostly impersonal film for him and he basically learned kind of how to how to get it done uh, yeah. on budget on schedule John Cassavetes saw Boxcar Bertha and he told Martin Scorsese never make a movie like this he said it's good for what it is but you just wasted a year of your life making shit <laughs> But even so, like, it was kind of a necessary stepping stone to get to Mean Streets. And I don't think Leonard Castle had the patience to play the game or try to make a couple of exploitation movies in the hope of eventually getting to make another labor of love, which may never even have come. So moving on to the next movie we watch, Wanda by Barbara Loden. Do you want to speak a little bit of who Barbara Loden was? Well, first of all, I'll tell you that Wanda is one of John Waters' favorite movies, and he called it uh, one of the great feel-bad movies. Uh, Barbara Loden had an amazing uh, life. She came up as kind of a pinup model and uh, glamour girl in New York. She was on the Ernie Kovacs show, basically as his, I've seen it quoted as, scantily clad uh, sidekick. But she was quite ambitious and enrolled in the acting school where she met uh, the man who would become her husband, Ilya Kazan. I, I remember reading that she got cast in the Burt Lancaster film, The Swimmer, which was directed by Frank Perry. And um, Frank Perry had some clashes with the producers over the final cut of that movie, leading him to be fired. And the Barbara Loden scenes in the movie The Swimmer, which is a really good movie, um, I highly recommend it, got cut out. Mm. And supposedly it's been tied into Ilya Kazan. 
Because if you read about Elia Kazan and Barbara Loden's relationship, he was very controlling yeah. and constantly afraid that he was going to lose her. So she was in a lot of his movies. She was in Splendor in the Grass. But eventually uh, she wrote and directed this movie, Wanda, for basically about $100,000. Uh, Elia Kazan claimed that he wrote it, but that she rewrote it so many times that it basically became hers, which I feel like is kind of a condescending way of having your cake and eating it too. Right? <laughs> yeah. like, like, well, I wrote it, but, but you know, she, she made it her own. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know what the truth is there. Uh, would you like to tell the good people what the movie's about? The movie is about a depressed young mother who leaves her family behind because she doesn't want to take care of them. Doesn't feel she can take care of them. And so there's a great, scene in a courtroom early in the movie when the husband that she's leaving she sort of strolls into the court late late and she's like oh yeah if he wants the kids he can have them she's like i don't i don't want to take care of them and the judge keeps asking her like are you sure <laughs> you don't want your children she's like no i don't want them mm-hmm. so then with almost no money in her pockets she just hits the road and a surprise to me because i didn't know what this movie was about meets up with a um just a skeezy criminal played by <laughs> Uh, Michael Higgins. And they just kind of hit the road, and he is awful to her. Basically, she she attaches herself to him when she doesn't quite realize it, but he's robbing a bar, (laughs) and she goes along with him. She has a one-night stand with him, and as he's trying to sneak out in the morning, she quickly gets dressed and jumps in the car, and he sort of figures out what the hell and they stick around together. Uh, they don't have great chemistry. <laughs> well, I mean, he's also an awful person, and it's difficult to see from a structural standpoint of your basic Hollywood, like, getting together movies, like, why she would stay with him. Sure. Because it's an abusive relationship. Sure. I mean, I know you. You like happy movies with a nice three-act structure and a... And a a good ending where the heroes are rewarded. <laughs> yeah, they rob the bank, they make it off, they go to Mexico. Yeah. But this is a very unpleasant film to watch. I don't think we could... Well, first of all, I'm curious about the historical context of this movie, because I've heard it described as a feminist movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe it's feminist insofar as it's directed by a woman, but it feels like the kind of movie that came out of that context of when books like Fear of Flying or The Feminine Mystique were being written, talking about you know, the the plight of the housewife um, who kind of had no control over her own destiny and, you know, was, just had this sort of state of ennui. It, it feels, I don't know, it feels like a product of that era. So like a real Sin in the Suburbs by Joe Sarno. <laughs> well, we should do a Joe Sarno episode. <laughs> We're not going to be doing a Joe Sarno episode. So the movie begins with her kind of like drifting out of this uh, which it, you get the feeling that she never really wanted at all. Like the first time we see her, she's waking up drunkenly on, I think her sister's bed is the implication mm-hmm. or sister's couch actually. And being like, I'm just going to wander through this wasteland of Pennsylvania, mostly composed of, it looks like coal mining and stuff like that. The Not at all picturesque. The beginning kind of reminded me of Antonioni's Red Desert, <laughs> where um, the main female character is just walking through this desert it's just blasted like it's not nice looking at all yeah i like the quiet desperation throughout this movie both in the characters and in the the landscape they're in it's a it creates a world of this kind of industrial wasteland this declining industrial wasteland where people just sort of drift into poverty and lives of crime and sadness i don't know in most movies there seems to be a a real clear dichotomy of 
criminals and good people and and this movie shows people just sort of sliding into a life of desperation um you talked about earlier that the director leonard castle said that the honeymoon killers was inspired by bonnie and clyde um, <laughs> this one feels almost like a direct template for bonnie and clyde or a response to bonnie and clyde, exactly maybe. and how miserable the reality of that kind of situation would probably be right because he's an abusive asshole and she's just she's somebody who drifted out of one kind of relationship she didn't like but kind of doesn't really know how else to function except attached to a man why do you think barbara loden didn't make any movies after that and that's keeping in mind that she did die i think at the age of around 50 from breast cancer in 1980 and this movie came out in 1970 well this movie had some success on the festival circuit it, it played at venice venice where it won a prize and it played at con I know that Ilya Kazan seemed somewhat threatened by her success. It, it's been said that he he didn't like the fact that, for example, she started dressing more like a man, uh, which was apparently something that she kind of had to do more to be taken s- seriously in film circles. When are we going to do the Ilya Kazan is a giant piece of shit episode? Cause... You know, I, I never thought I'd say this, but I think I disapprove of Ilya Kazan's <laughs> behavior on something. <laughs> for people that don't know, Ilya Kazan being a famous um, blacklist uh, tattletale, tattletale <laughs> who later on went to move made a movie on the waterfront to make himself feel better about naming names right so it seems that her the the modest success she had with this movie drifted them apart uh, they were estranged they were still married but estranged by the time she died in 1980 and also it seems there's a bit of a sense of i mean this movie was successful on the festival circuit but it didn't really make any waves theatrically so uh, probably the studios were like, why should we give you money if you're going to deliver something else like this? I mean, there's not nothing even money. remotely commercial about this movie. And it seems there seems a sense that the fact that she had uh, Ilya Kazan... His uh, blessing? Well, or I don't know if he was really all that supportive of her. So it, it, there seems a sense that it might not have helped. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like afterwards that... The studio heads or whoever's giving out the money were like, ooh, no, we don't want to piss off your husband. So, sorry, there's no opportunities right now that we can offer you. Because even this movie she made on a shoestring with, like, a two-person crew, so... Mm. It's also a bit, just a bit of an abrasive movie, probably for the times. Uh, I mean, again, not to be armchair psychologist here, but the idea of, uh, I mean, a woman making a movie at this time was already unusual, but for a woman to make a movie about kind of a... I don't want to say irresponsible woman, but a confused woman who leaves her normal life behind and enters this abusive relationship and it ends incredibly downbeat. But the movie's not judgmental of the woman per se. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it rubbed people the wrong way. This is another one of those movies that like The Honeymoon Killers has gained more of a following over the years, especially now that there's kind of more of a movement towards recognizing female directors. I was just waiting to see where you were going to go with that. If you're going to be like, now that women are finally getting their chance. Now that we have equality. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, but now that there's more of a focus on the question of like, why are women directing more movies? Well, I mean, whenever you see a list of, you know, the top 50 movies directed by women, which there have been a number of those lists in recent years, as there should be, it's like, it seems like the first 80 years of film history, there are like maybe 10 movies. And this is always one of them. Mm-hmm. And I- the other ones are like triumph of the will. <laughs> <laughs> So, Triumph of the Will, and, Wanda Double Bill. And Meshes of the Afternoon. Mm-hmm. Great movie. 
I, I love it, yeah. Um, for people who don't know, Match of the Afternoon being an experimental film that came out in the 1930s? 1940s, I think. It, it was slim pickings for films directed by women for the f- from before, like, 1970. Mm-hmm. A Nazi propaganda film, an experimental film, and Wanda. Well, you should check <laughs> and, all and of And there, there were others. Yeah. I, I oversimplify. <laughs> so, moving on to the granddaddy of one-shot wonders. It's Night of the Hunter. I love Night of the Hunter. Did not rewatch. Tell me, how did you enjoy watching it again? I had seen this movie before, as you have to if you're a film fan. It's one of those bona fides that you have to sign off on when you start <laughs> watching a bunch of movies. I remembered it being a lot more wham bam, kind of like Citizen Kane in its visual invention. And what I discovered this time watching it was it was more allied to the German expressionist kind of, you know, straight ahead movie making from something like the early career of F.W. Murnau as opposed to the later career of F.W. Murnau when he was making things like Faust. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the director of this movie, by the way, is uh, the beloved Charles Lawton, star of Abbott and Costello meet Captain <laughs> Kidd. Uh, and uh, a beloved Hollywood a leading man, not just character actor, a leading man, for God's sake. And this movie is famous mostly, like I said, for its visual invention and the main performance by Robert Mitchum. Okay, there's a scene in this movie that I think is one of the best scenes ever. It's when the, the kids are hiding in the basement and the door creaks open and Robert Mitchum sticks his head in and goes, children. <laughs> I think that scene is so chilling. I like the scene where Robert Mitchum is in the water and the boat is floating away and there's a close-up on his face where he just goes Aah! The movie is basically like the Terminator. Um, <laughs> except except It's Robert a real Westworld. <laughs> so, this is a tough one because there have been books written about this movie. There have been numerous commentary tracks and documentaries and looking at all of them, I kind of realized, I don't know if I have that much to say other well, than it's a good movie. Well, why didn't Charles Lawton make another movie. I I don't know. I like I mean, this movie wasn't successful at the no, time it as wasn't. well. That could be that one seems of the to be a running theme of all these movies, as opposed to like the one that was a huge smash hit and the person was like, eh, I don't want to make anymore. Right. <laughs> it's just a personal decision. I think that it could have also been that when this movie was a failure and you can see that he put his all in it, he was an actor. Mm-hmm. He had something to fall back on. So he was like, well, I guess this directing thing is not going to work out for me. I also just want to point out for the record that the movie was written by a noted drunken film critic, <laughs> James Agee. One of, I think, two movies he wrote, the other being The African Queen. Mm-hmm. So not bad. Yeah, that's a good run. Yeah. If we're going to do, uh, we can't do him as a one-shot because he wrote two screenplays. I know, it's too bad. But hey, let's talk about the real granddaddy of one-shot wonders, Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> the Room? So are, do you think we're ever going to get another Tommy Wiseau movie? I don't think we're ever going to get a real Tommy Wiseau movie like The Room was. When you read The Disaster Artist, you get a sense. You remember there was that guy who worked on The Room who later took credit for having directed it. Uh, yeah, it was like the assistant director, Sandy Schlar or something. He said, oh yeah, I really directed it. And when you read The Disaster Artist, you get the sense that, well, he didn't exactly direct it, but he was the one voice of sanity standing between Tommy Wiseau and the movie just falling apart. It feels like Tommy Wiseau is a figure who could not direct a movie on his own. He just does not have that kind of mind to do it. Uh So you do need that kind of guiding figure. But now that Tommy Wiseau is so big and people know who he is, that's kind of gone from his movies. Like, have you you seen his TV show, The Neighbors? No, I'm not going to watch that. It's, It's horrible. And you get a sense that that's nobody saying no to Tommy. (laughs) (laughs) He's a real George Lucas now. But then we can talk about another filmmaker who's not a one-shot artist, but we can compare to Tommy Wiseau. Justin DeClue. Neil Breen. Oh, oh, Neil Breen. Okay. (laughs) Oh, jeez. 
So Neil Breen is a filmmaker who has made multiple films, so he's not a one-shot wonder. Uh But he has that kind of persistent vision that Tommy Wiseau has. Mm. But the thing about Neil Breen is he works in a bubble where it feels like the people that he works with don't really know what kind of movie he's making. Mm. And he's just paying them, they're showing up and doing the job. So his movies remain pure. They seem to be like Craigslist actors, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I'm kind of impressed by the fact that Neil Breen has managed to make four or five movies and without incident, Bas- like Tommy Wiseau seems to be somebody who's just this combustible figure who you could all fall apart any time because he's an unstable, crazy man. But Neil Breen seems to have, you know, the, the, the good sense to at least finish, s- somehow get these movies done. It feels like Neil Breen is a guy who just throws away all criticism and stuff like that. Because if you talk to him about his old, or like his fateful finding or something like that, he'll go, oh, that movie's in the past. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> now I'm focusing on this new movie. You know who else is like that? Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> Neil Breen, Jean-Luc Godard, outsider artist. So back to Night of the Hunter. Uh, it has a real pungent atmosphere, you know, that Louisiana bayou feel. Like... Uh, Okay, I'm just going to draw a crazy connection here. Um, You know how uh, he has the love and hate, Robert Mitchum has love and hate written on his knuckles and then later recurs in Do the Right Thing. Well, I think both movies have just an intense, like, sense of place as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's one of the reasons that the film has been so popular? Like, Night of the Hunter is the one that... On Twitter, people are goddamn always posting photos of Robert Mitchum. <laughs> like, oh, with his stupid, like, hate, love on, yeah, his, yeah. on his hands? Yeah. I think so. I mean, I don't know. Do, do people who aren't movie buffs watch Night of the Hunter? I don't think so. Okay. I don't... Have you ever heard... Like, who no. do you base these non-movie buff people on? That's a question oh, that we always just, ask. Just the, the plebs, like the... <laughs> I was going to say, like... Um, our parents, but you have very intellectual parents, and oh, my parents yeah. do not watch movies at all. So that's a basically a no-go on their side of things. Sure. Yeah, my parents have seen Night of the Hunter. They like it. They mm. like My mom really likes Robert Mitchum. <laughs> Especially in Night of the Hunter. Yeah. She's like, man, if I could just marry Robert Mitchum from Night of the Hunter, that made me happy. I think... Uh, uh, I, rem- I remember what Polly and Kale said about Robert Mitchum. Uh, the I think I said it on our episode. Uh, he has a gut that becomes an honorary chest. <laughs> I love Robert Mitchum. He's one of the when there's, Robert Mitchum is in a movie showing up, usually drunk or high. You know you're in for a good time. I think he's a truly terrifying man, but also somebody who you'd like to get a beer with. Like he is simultaneously both those things. Like have you seen him in uh, Cape Fear? Yes. Okay. For the most part, Cape Fear, not as good as the Martin Scorsese version, but uh, Robert Mitchum blows De Niro out of the water in that role. Well, he has that kind of charm, and you see it in kind of, in Night of the Hunter, where he can be at once, hey, I want to be your friend, but at the same time, it's really menacing. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about the end of the movie, where suddenly like the crowd goes wild, and they have the torches and stuff like that, and all those Bible verses are thrown left and right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll take it. I love that they're yelling Bluebeard. Like, that was a thing that used to happen all the time. I mean, you know, honestly, if if I had my way, he would have gotten away with it at the end. I mean, that would have been your, the Will Sloan, like, yeah. you're going to Ted Turner it and go in and change the well, ending? Well, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying, like, it would have felt... Well, then again, maybe it wouldn't have felt good. Maybe that would have been. Maybe it's bad to have evil triumph at the end of the movie. It but... almost feels like a studio note, though, with everything well, those, that's gone before. I mean, this is still when the production code was in effect, and you actually couldn't have a villain triumph at the end, right? 
Mm-hmm. But then again, I mean, after you spent the whole movie, you know, fearing for these children. <laughs> and this child who's broken down. Yeah. Maybe it's good that the villain gets uh, gets his comeuppance. I was really hoping that at the end, Robert Mitchum, when he gets, spoiler alert for a movie that's a million years old, <laughs> uh, gets arrested like the way that the kid's father does that the kid would just go over and like stab him with a pitchfork or something like that instead the kid breaks down and seems to be like no don't do it well it's a shame that uh charles lawton never directed another movie and was too busy being a beloved character actor and uh comically closeted homosexual (laughs) (laughs) i would have been he was married to uh, elsa lanchester who uh, is the Bride of Frankenstein. Wait, he was? Yes, um, and was also Katie Nana in Mary Poppins. Uh, the thing that all of these one-shot wonders beg the question is, like, what would these filmmakers' careers have been if they had continued to make movies? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you can't really say... I mean. I, just the fact that they didn't make another movie, I think, disqualifies them from being considered a great director. I don't know. A great director, I think, has a body of work. Really? So yeah. they can't be just a great director with one film that has lasted through the test of time? No, that just means you've made a great film. I mean, it might mean you're talented, but I feel like great director symbolizes something else. Like, oh. it symbolizes somebody who is a great director and has a body of work. Well, I mean, I don't want to say consistently, because there are obviously great directors who peter out. But there's got to be a body of work there. Oh, okay. That's an interesting... Do you disagree with me? You can be a great director and make one film. That's like playing, like, I don't know, like you play basketball once and you, you're really good at it, so you're a great basketball player. Is that... Like, if if someone would make a film and then get killed right away, right after... Are oh, they like, like Jean Vigo or someone? Yeah. Uh, I, you know what? I'm going to say that I, I think they can be a great director. Well, I mean, th- there's still the what-if question with them. But with somebody like Leonard Castle... Uh, and they make one great movie and you say, oh, you know, what else could there be? And it turns out, oh, there's nothing. Yeah. I mean, for all, and he lived another 35, 40 years. For all we know, that's all they had to say. Yeah. So. So that disqualifies from them being a great director. It means they had one great statement to make. Okay. I think. And, you know, write in and tell me I'm wrong if you want. Yeah. I mean, this is going to go in circles because I don't know if I agree with you. Uh Uh-huh. Because the act of making the movie involves them being great director. But I can see your logic is that repeating being great takes away from the fact that, like, maybe it was a cinematographer that was really good and kind of guided him. Yeah, Or maybe. maybe it was something else, so. Maybe. Uh, but I don't want to be disrespectful of these people. And, I mean, Barbara Loden died ten years later yeah. uh, after having a hard go of it trying to make another movie. So maybe there would have been more from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, hey, if Leonard Castle had gotten another one of those movies uh, off the ground... Or if Charles Lawton had directed something else. Because his visual style is so specific on Mm. Night of the Hunter that that's what interests me. Like, would he continue to utilize this style? Would he have gone in a different direction? And I mean, it's it's so... I mean, obviously, people aren't the people who they play, but Charles Lawton is such a kind of beloved, cuddly character actor, you know, Ruggles of Red Gap and that sort of movie, that it's it's weird to see him make a movie that's so kind of intense and, uh, yeah, suspenseful. And he was supposedly a great actor's director uh, as well, mm-hmm. which is something that some people don't always associate with Night of the Hunter because its visuals are the first thing that popped to your mind. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the actors said that it was their most um, pleasant time mm-hmm. being directed and they believed that it was their best performances. Yeah, there you go. So what are we doing next week, Will? We're, it's hot out, and so we're going to take it easy. And we're <laughs> we're going to take it so easy. We're going to do Steven Seagal. <laughs> Steven Seagal. Just because we think it would be it would be a laugh. Yes. Uh, and then after after Steven Seagal, we're going to do something classy again. Yeah. So Something th- difficult that we're going to have to do research and shit like that. Yeah, but, but I think we can do Steven Seagal in our fucking sleep. Oh, man. <laughs> 
you should read people that are listening, not Will, because I know he's already read it, the <laughs> Seagology book by Vern, because oh, it's great. It is. Oh, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I think I probably, you know, saying that we're not going to do work, I'm probably going to reread that book again just for the episode. I mean, that, that's just pure pleasure, though. So we're going to watch Steven Seagal's only, to date, directorial <laughs> effort. To date? <laughs> like he's going to whip another one up? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, it's called uh, On Deadly Ground. It stars him and Michael Caine, oh. the best villain he ever got. Uh, and it's a hilarious uh, environmental action movie that ends with him delivering a great dictator-style speech. And... Then we're going to watch one of his shitty DTV films. We could tell you the title, but... I think... You know which one I think we should watch? We should watch Out for a Kill. Can I just throw it out there? I, I mean... You, I mean, you could say any title. You could, be, you could be like, you know, guns in your hands. And I'd be like, yeah, I guess. The thing is, I saw Out for a Kill like a few years ago, and I remember laughing my ass off at it. Like, oh, You know what? I love Half Past Dead, though. But that was his last theatrically released film. Look, I'll watch that, too, if you, <laughs> if you want. You're like, we're just going to watch... We can make it a three... Uh, like, t- to me, like, yeah, you know... Wanda, Honeymoon Killers, these nice genteel like masterpieces. Like, just pump this Seagal shit into my veins. I mean, we're gonna, we should leave this podcast off with the tantalizing, you know, taste of the Seagal that we'll get next week, which is that me and Will recently at Will's birthday party. (laughs) It was my surprise birthday party. And then towards the end of the party, they said, okay, we can watch anything you want on Netflix. And I said, okay, Steven Seagal. And we ended up watching just his TV show edited together into one movie. (laughs) And it ended with a line that I am shocked I have not seen, like, on the internet or used as comments where Seagal says, it takes a ghost to kill a ghost. And I'm a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of that stuff next week. Good stuff. My name's Justin McClue. My name's Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So you've just discovered Al Pacino in the clip from Jack and Jill, aptly titled Dunkachino. Yeah, like most people, I haven't seen Jack and Jill, um, I guess because like I've been brainwashed by the lamestream media who, <laughs> who turned their back on, on a, a true artist, Adam Sandler. But that clip is genuinely funny. It's the whole movie is Adam Sandler trying to get Al Pacino <laughs> playing himself to make this Dunka, um, what, Dunkin' Donuts commercial. And the commercial they make is him just spouting lines so, from his old movies. The commercial starts at a Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, the product placement is hilarious. <laughs> Al Pacino walks in, and everywhere he goes, Oh, it's Al Pacino. And he goes, Not anymore! It's Dunk! And the guy at the, at the cash register goes, Dunk a Chino? And he goes, Don't mind if I do! A Dunk 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 a Chino! It's a whole new game! Dunk a Chino! Um, uh, wait, hang on. Uh, if you want creamy goodness, I'm your friend. Say hello to my chocolate blend. Oh. And he, like, busts open his jacket and he's wearing a vest that has donuts all over it. And he goes, Attica, hua, latte light. This whole courtroom's out of sight. And then there are more catchphrases. Like, some of them very obvious, some of them more deeper cuts. Yeah, like, uh, or, you know, I think there were a lot of people. You, you know, the mainstream media, the lamestream media, as I and my my spirit animal, Sarah Palin, call it, uh, looked at, uh, I mean, he won a Razzie for this movie, and there, there was a general tone to the reviews of the time that were like, oh, isn't it a shame that, that Michael Corleone from The Godfather is reduced to 
uh, pissing on his legacy like this. And I, and you know what? Fuck that. Because Looks like he's having fun. It is, it is so funny, and he he does incredible dance moves. <laughs> and the whole thing ends with Adam Sandler and Al Pacino watching the commercial, and Al Pacino goes, "Burn it." <laughs> Has anybody seen this? <laughs> like it is. It feels like weird meta commentary about Jack and Jill itself. Like most people who do a cameo in an Adam Sandler movie just phone it in. But Al Pacino is so intense and so committed. Like when he when he goes to the camera and he lifts his cock and he goes, "Don't mind if I do." It's so intense, and the, the, he actually learned dance moves for this. I think it's his best performance since Heat, probably. <laughs> 